Welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 141. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now we do have another Q&A lined up for you today, so we're going to jump straight into this first question. Jack, it says, would you recommend reversing or going to maintenance after being in a deficit for six months? Right. So this is entirely dependent on the individual's goals. Mm. And I guess let's break down both scenarios. So you've just finished a period of weight loss and maybe you've lost five kilos, maybe you've lost 20 kilos, but ultimately we have that choice of two different options, either going to maintenance or going into a surplus. And I guess reversing is a roundabout way of getting to maintenance Mm. depending on how you structure it. I guess I can also interpret reversing as taking a prolonged period of time to gradually increase the surplus as well. Mm. So I guess taking your time to get back up to maintenance, I would personally argue that it's just a bit of a waste of time. And I think some people indicate that, okay, you're going to metabolically adapt as you reverse and therefore you're going to be able to eat more food by the time you get to your maintenance calories. But in theory, that sounds really nice. In practice, it doesn't really add up to be quite that uh, rosy. Yeah, unfortunately. And I guess this question is relating to someone who's been chronically dieted now for six months. And you said it there first and that it's highly dependent on who this person is. So for example, if this is a comp prep competitor and six months, that's around 26 weeks, give or take, that's around the average time length of a comp prep these days to get someone in the condition required. Usually if they have a good starting body composition, you would hope that they got the job done. They achieved that conditioning for their category. And by the end of that six months for a competitor in that case, then you would certainly be getting them right back up to maintenance initially and then getting them straight into a surplus. Mm. But of course- this might not be a competitor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So other people definitely are on different journeys. So for example, let's say that you are carrying a bit of extra weight on you and you know that you do have a long journey ahead of you. If you wanna do it responsibly and safely, it's going to take more than just a six month diet to ultimately achieve your goal body composition. But if you've been dieting for six months, but then you know that you still have more to go, this is the question of, do you just keep going or should you give yourself a little break? Mm. I always think that For most people, especially if it's six months and they haven't had some sort of diet break yet, Mm. I would strongly encourage a period of maintenance, especially over the festive season potentially as well, where you might have more social events and you kind of want to uh, take that into account as well. And just being realistic with your social calendar over Christmas and New Year's. Yeah, I completely agree. Like if you've just gone through six months and let's say in total, you've got about 30 kilograms to lose and you know that that's realistically probably going to take you one to one and a half years, again, to do it in a safe and healthy manner, losing 10 to 15 kilograms within a six month period, then perhaps slowly reversing yourself back up to maintenance. Again, reverse diets, you don't have to be reversing, I don't think, Jack, for like weeks on end. You can reverse someone almost by every few days, you can start bumping up food until Mm. you actually reach that maintenance point hover around there for maybe at least a month or two or something. And then once that person is physically and mentally in a good position to push again, then you recommence the diet. Yeah. And I guess just breaking down the benefits of reversing versus 
not reversing. Mm. Like, what are the benefits of reversing? Well, I think it would hugely be psychologically just helping someone get their head around eating more food again and kind of easing into it rather than just being like, hey, here's an extra 500 calories. Hey, here's an extra 1,000 calories. Also, you're not necessarily taking a stab in the dark at someone's predicted maintenance. It kind of helps you find that maintenance rather than, you know, saying like, oh, this person's in a deficit. They're eating this amount of calories. It's predicted that they're probably around 500 calories below their maintenance. So Mm. let's just bump them immediately up by 500 calories. Rather than taking that stab in the dark, you can kind of go, why don't we bump you up by 200 calories to begin with? Mm. See how you respond for a week or at least for a few days because you can always increase rather than just overshooting it. You don't risk that. Yeah, I think we can both agree though that we're not saying to increase your carbs by 25 grams each week. Mm. Definitely not because that's, been by period previous people have been stated as like their go-to method for reverse dieting which we definitely think is just way too slow even 25 grams would be quite significant for some protocols i've heard of some Mm. people do it in like 10 gram increments and i guess the other side of the coin as well is again dependent on what your goals are but for people who are wanting to prioritize muscle gain like let's say to to be fair, the person's been dieting for six months, but let's say it is a comp prep, like your goal is to put on some muscle afterwards, then being at maintenance isn't going to be that productive. Mm-hmm. So we don't know how much weight this person has to lose. We don't know if they've finished. So just in a different scenario, if your goal now is to commence more productive muscle gain, mm-hmm. then gaining some weight is going to be appropriate for that. And staying at maintenance isn't going to be overly productive as as a natural individual yeah but i certainly think like at least doing it in decently sized chunks like okay hey let's put a pause on this deficit let's give you an additional 50 grams of carbs 75 grams of carbs per day see how you respond and keep inching it up from there like we we've both been in huge deficits before and even the thought of like an additional 50 grams of carbs you're like man that's a decent sized bowl of oats right there sort of Mm. thing so you know even having like one extra bowl of oats during the day even if that still got you in a slight deficit it almost will just make you feel better a little bit psychologically too Mm. but we also have to remember that not everyone's goal is to constantly be going through these cutting and building phases Sometimes people just reach a body composition and reach a a scale weight and they're like, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty happy here. And sometimes it's fine to just stay, (laughs) stay there and be happy with who you are around that point. And that's something that I've learned as a coach too. Like the ultimate goal doesn't always have to be, okay, how much food can we get into this person's body? Sometimes people are good and you can just eat a similar amount of food and just stay as you are and just be happy, healthy, and fit. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I think it's the minutiae of our audience though. I do. (laughs) Most of us want to get big (laughs) and then we want to get lean. (laughs) All right, but hopefully that did answer your question. So before we get into the next one, we wanted to let you know about something that has released recently and we've talked about our t-shirts and our apparel on previous episodes and basically officially they are live at the moment we released them a few days ago in fact so they are actually live on our website now thebodybuildingdietitians.com tiara will release a link in the show notes below so just scroll down and click on that link if you would like to purchase a t-shirt 
Basically, we have a bunch of different sizes and colors, so black, white, and navy, available in oversized or a standard fit of your choosing. Yeah, so sizes go from small all the way up to 3XL. Mm, indeed. And feel free to message us over on Instagram if you have any questions about the sizing, but we'd love to see as many people repping uh, the TBD shirts as, as possible. And we built an amazing community on the podcast and via Instagram. So it's going to be awesome to see everyone interested in the apparel. Yeah, I love them so much. Even you and I have been training in them these past few days and they're just excellent quality. And guys, honestly, if you're looking for a t-shirt that you can just put on, go to the gym and you feel like you can just train in, honestly, this is your shirt. <laughs> so yeah, check out the link in the description below and get yourself a TBD tee. Awesome. Cool. Well, what's the next question? All right. This next one, it says, can you get ab definition at a healthy body fat? Mm, well, another it depends question. Mm -hmm. So it will be dependent on a few factors. First of all, like what do you categorize as a healthy body weight? Mm -hmm. And depends on your genetics, depends on your abdominal structure, depends on what your body fat set point is, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think it's, it certainly is very subjective, isn't it? Mm. So for example, like did the question asked, just said abs, like, does that mean one ab, two abs? Six yeah, abs? that's the thing. Cause I always find that the top ones, they pop through a hell of a lot more. But I think also because a lot of people do a lot of crunching variations in an attempt to grow their abs. And at least I found that crunches definitely develop the top abs a lot more than the lower abs for your lower abdominals. You have to do more things like hanging leg raises. I find decline sit-ups feel really good. Mm. What sort of lower abdominal exercises do you enjoy? I really like decline sit-ups. Mm. Those would be my favorite. I find that abdominal exercises where you're coming up, like resisting gravity, I find promote the abdominal exercise, uh, mm. the lower abdominals more. Whereas the, the exercises where you're crunching from a standing position tends to work the upper abdominals a bit mm -hmm. more. Yeah, so definitely make sure you're moving in both ways, guys. Mm. <laughs> but Jack, can you get them at a healthy level of body fat? Yes, and it's, it's so dependent on, mm. on factors. So it's tough to answer and it's also tough to answer without offending some people as well. Mm -hmm. But I think what it comes down to is just gaining more muscularity overall yeah. and the more muscle you have the leaner you'll look at any given body fat mm. and that's going to be the best way forward for most people because sure you could diet down until you see your abdominals and then you could argue that that isn't particularly a fun spot to be in like you might have high food focus you might have low energy your training might be average so it wouldn't be the best possible position mm -hmm. to be in and the other point as well is we kind of have to bring this up, even though it, I can understand where the asker is coming from, but like, why do you need abs? Yeah. Like, I don't really have abs at the moment. I'm quite happy about it. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's just, it's, it's like that badge of honor. I feel as though that if someone sees someone with visible abdominals, it's almost like they get that tick of approval of like, oh yeah, this person works out. Mm. This person's pretty fit probably because you know, genetically people are just predisposed to hold 
more body fat in their abdominal region because evolutionarily we need to because that's where all our vital organs are and we know that abdominal fat it helps to protect us and cushion us when harm comes our way so if someone is in a lean enough state to actually see visible abdominals it's like wow you know this person works out they're pretty fit but yeah you have to remember that abdominals are a muscle group just like any other muscle group so if you build your biceps to be large enough, like you'll see them given at any body fat that you're going to be at sort of thing. But absolutely right. You just have to have more muscle in that area for it to truly protrude. Mm. I think it's one of those things where once you've achieved them, like we've both been stage lean and Mm -hmm. I've had very defined abdominals recently in May. I've just had a bit of a a washboard. (laughs) 2023 yes that's right that's when you're gonna see the the big blocks of cheese Mm. and like i guess one sure it's nice for the gram to have some more to be a bit leaner Mm. but it's totally dependent on your goal like for me right now i couldn't really care less about having a super washboard six pack Mm. and i'd rather focus more on my strength and progression in the gym which is going to be much more predictive at my current body weight Mm -hmm to then gain muscle for a later date so but also especially i feel like with us physique competitors it's almost as if it's a sign that someone is holding fairly good condition in their improvement season if you can still see a bit of abdominal definition Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like i know you and i both go for that like when we're taking progress photos we're like oh cool like i can still see a little bit of definition in my core like still holding on Yeah, it's, you definitely don't want to lose all your abdominals mm. in a gaining phase because that's a bit too much. Yeah. It's usually a sign that body fat's probably over like, mm-hmm. for males at least, like over 25% even for some people to lose all your abs. But again, everyone has a different standard for what they expect from the abdominals. Like I know you and I being physique competitors ourselves, like our eyes have now been adjusted to what is truly lean. Like mm. when someone says, wow, they're so lean, we're like, nah, <laughs> still got a few kilograms to go. You know, but the average person sees, you know, Jake running down the beach on home and away, and he's got like one shadow well, I'm guilty of, of saying that. Yeah, I? but he's got like one shadow of a pec line, you know, and like two little upper abdominals popping through, and they're like, oh my God, Jake is so fit. He's so lean. But you and I are like, Jake needs to go to the gym. <laughs> so I, I think More it's every, you, I everyone's think. standard, you know? Yeah. Well, I always see actors on TV and I, I'm the one who remarks to you about how fit they're looking. Yeah. And I'm like, Jack, you look way better than those dudes. <laughs> but hey, that's why you always need a second pair of eyes, right? Mm. Anyway, guys, build your abdominals. They're just like any other muscle group. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the short answer to this question and don't really have too much else to add there. Mm-hmm. Just be, be realistic about it in terms of they're a muscle group. You're not really defined by how yeah, they're important, but they're not that important. Mm. Cool. What's the next question? All right, Jack. This one says, if you have DOMS, does the inflammation affect your scale weight? Yes, it does. It can do. Definitely for more people than some individuals more than others. And also dependent even on what workout you did. Yeah, because I think we've all experienced where, you know, you can have a super duper active day. Like even when you are in a dieting phase, let's say that you are in a digging phase, you know, you're on a low amount of carbs and you have a big leg session in the morning, you're a PT on the gym floor, you end up walking like 20,000 steps that day. And then 
unexpectedly in the afternoon, your friend calls you up and wants you to help them move house. And, you know, you just rack up this enormously active day and you're like, there is no possible way I am not in an energy deficit. You wake up the next morning, your scale weight spiked by a kilogram and you're like, what is this shit? (laughs) We've all been there. But then you have a day where maybe you eat a little bit more food, you chill out, maybe you go for a walk with your dog, you lay on the couch all day, right? And then you wake up the next morning, your scale weights dropped by a kilogram. And you're Mm. like, what? So should I just be lazy and then I'll achieve my goals? So yeah, inflammation, water retention, you know, it's a total mind flip, but it's very, very normal. And uh, the reason for this is that When we are doing exercise, we have to remember that that is a stressor on the body. We're putting the body under a stressful condition. And what actually happens when you are performing exercise is that hormones start to be released from your hypothalamus. So from your posterior pituitary gland, you have this hormone called antidiuretic hormone, ADH. It's also called vasopressin in some physiology books. But vasopressin, ADH, that's released. It goes down to the kidney and it actually stimulates more fluid reabsorption from the kidneys back into the bloodstream because the body's like, hey, I'm sensing that I'm potentially at a risk here of dehydration. So I want to hold on to a little bit of extra hydration. So I wonder if it's even also like when you're in a stressful situation, your body doesn't want to piss because <laughs> like it, if you're running away or attacking something, you can't piss, obviously. So you... you Uh, promote fluid reabsorption so you don't use the bathroom potentially but we also know there that you've got like your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system so if you were stressed out in your sympathetic nervous system your blood flow is primarily directed away from your vital organs more to your skeletal musculature and it's redirected away from things like your kidneys so you can't go pee while you're you know running Mm. away from someone for a purpose Mm. yeah or maybe indirectly But either way, so this hormone ADH, which helps with fluid reabsorption from the kidneys, that can stay elevated for a number of hours following exercise. Pretty sure we learned in physiology that it can be elevated for one to two days, even if you were like in really stressful conditions. And that's also just so that you are retaining more fluid, one, so that you stay well hydrated, of course, but exercise it is again a stressor on the body and when you are resistance training and you're actually breaking down skeletal muscle fibers that actually induces inflammation hey guys just a reminder that we offer coaching services which you can find on our website by searching the bodybuilding dietitians on google or via the show notes below we coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal and because your body is in this pro-inflammatory state it's going to respond as if it is hurt, right? Because inflammation, it can be both acute. So let's say that you stub your toe or it can be chronic. So things like chronic arthritis, right? But when you are inflamed, you can usually actually even see it. Like inflammation is when those cells are damaged. So you're getting a whole bunch of white blood cells actually rushing to that area, but it can swell up, which is additional fluid. It can feel quite hot because you're having increased blood flow go to that area as well. And it's it's just a bit sore, but it's very normal for you to be slightly inflamed following a large bout of exercise because that inflammation, it just causes a cascade of reactions so that it actually induces more muscle growth. It's very neat, isn't it? <laughs> and I think we've all been frustrated when the scale kind of jumps up and down 
as a result of like a hard workout, we might expect it to go down mm. when in fact it goes up. And I definitely think some people are more prone to this than others. Maybe those people who aren't as consistent in their training or who have some very, may take the, the sessions a little bit easier and then they'll have a harder session and then mm. it will spike up. Uh, for example, for myself, like I know that my my daily weigh-ins are quite consistent regardless of what session I do. Um, they're definitely more dictated by my food composition mm. rather than what I train. I know for me that after some of my really demanding training sessions, the next day I usually will wake up a few hundred grams heavier. And it's actually on my rest days that usually my weight subsides and actually comes back down to baseline, mm. which is good. But something interesting that actually happened to me this past week was actually in regards to inflammation because this past week I actually really hurt my foot by accident. So I was doing dumbbell RDLs at the gym and I was holding a 45 in each hand and I'd finished my last rep. Kilos, and, not pounds. Yeah, 45 kilograms per hand, right? So I had 90 kilograms in my hands and I'd finished my last rep and I went to just re-rack the dumbbells on the bench and I took a step back, Jack, and my foot stepped onto the back ledge of the bench. You know how guys, the like benches usually come out at a T and they have the two little wheels at the end. I took one step back and I didn't realize it was right behind me. The arch of my foot just went crunch with 90 kilograms in my hands. And I was like, holy flips. So I put these dumbbells down and my foot has been absolutely flipped ever since. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty messed up. Anyway, so I've actually been in a little bit of pain, so I've been icing it, but I also took some ibuprofen through norepinephrine. And what I actually found was I took this norepinephrine after it actually done one of my biggest workouts for the week where I do my kettlebell Bulgarians and I do my dumbbell RDLs. And usually I am destroyed for like the next two days after that workout. Like my glutes are so ridiculously sore. But because I took this ibuprofen after that workout, it helped with my foot pain a little bit, but I haven't had the same doms that I'd usually get from that workout. Mm. And I'm not going to lie, like I miss them a little bit because there's a bit of research actually that Mass has published in terms of athletes actually taking ibuprofen. So like an NSAID, it's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug and it helps to reduce inflammation in the body. But like we said before, because inflammation is actually really important for inducing muscle growth, if you are supplementing with NSAIDs chronically, it could potentially reduce the amount of hypertrophy that you experience. So I was almost like reluctant to take this NSAID because I was like, no, <laughs> the glute gains, but my foot is absolutely flipped. <laughs> so I chose to take it. But um, luckily the research shows that you have to be taking very high doses, like 1,200 milligrams every single day for weeks on end. Do you know how much a tablet is? One tablet is 200. So I took two tablets, so that's 400. And they say that the literature right now says like, if you're taking 400 milligrams once in every while, like that's not enough to negate the effects of muscle growth in the long term. So I think I'm in the clear, but obviously it's something that you don't want to abuse. Mm. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, but I just, I thought that was really, really interesting how um, it literally did reduce my doms. But I find that perhaps like athletes could almost fall into that trap sort of thing where they're like, 
oh, you know, I, I'm really training really hard and I just really want to promote my recovery. I don't want to feel as sore. I don't want to feel as inflamed. I'll just pop a few NSAIDs, mm. right? I guess Ooh. you would argue that if your DOMs are that bad, you're, they shouldn't be. They mm. should be manageable. Yeah, you're overtraining, man. Mm. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes. Anyway, I just thought that was really funny that those two little pills, you know, they took away my glute DOMs. Mm. Let's just pray that they make my foot better. <laughs> Yeah, what do you think is the matter with your foot? I think I just, I bruised something. I bruised a little tendon in it. And I am I think I'm just too stubborn to go to the doctor and be told what I already know. Because like, mm. I can walk on it. It's fine. It's just if I put it into a weird position and it just, it feels a little bit hot and swollen sometimes. But it's like, it's on the roof of my foot now. Uh, so I just kind of so need to migrated. let it rest. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Like initially, because when I crunched down, it hurt on the bottom of my foot. But now it's almost like gravitated toward the top. If there's any uh, podiatrists listening to this podcast, please tell me if I'm an absolute fool and need to go get my foot checked out. But I think I'd need to have an exam to do that. Mm. <laughs> anyway, guys, that's my little story on um, NSAIDs. But yeah, inflammation after exercise, totally normal. And that's why, especially in peak week, for like bodybuilders in particular, you guys only train legs at the very beginning of the week. So you're not like really inflamed on show day. Yeah, totally. Even a uh, seven days prior. Mm. So we try and prevent it then. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, Jack, this last question of the day, it says, what are some tips for sleep hygiene? Cool. Yeah, we have quite a few tips for sleep hygiene and something that we take a huge priority on with pretty much every client is we always ask them about sleep mm. and Sleep is just incredibly important for pretty much everything. We've done a lot of infographics on it on TBD, our Instagram. Mm -hmm. So sleep better, be better. That's right. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our Instagram and YouTube channel. So make sure to go over to those platforms and search the bodybuilding dietitians. See you there. And so basically sleep recommendations are at least seven hours per night, ideally seven to nine hours. If you're exercising regularly and you're focused on athletic performance and muscle growth, then basically the more sleep, the better. Like eight to nine hours per night should be a non-negotiable for people who are trying to progress as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And one of my our least favorite sayings is like, it's something like sleep when you're done or sleep when I'm what, sleep when you're dead. Yeah, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Yeah, which I just think is stupid. Yeah, because literally you're going to die mm. at a younger age. It's almost to the point where like people who get up earlier to eat or they get up earlier to train. Like something I would tell my clients is like, I'd honestly rather you sleep a little bit longer, get seven hours at mm. the bare minimum and try and train at a different time so that you can sleep longer yeah i totally agree it's that big golden ticket item that's just gonna have this like domino effect on every single aspect Mm. of your quality of life the quality of your performance in the gym absolutely everything so yeah i think that it should really be treated as a top priority before you know you're slapping someone on the wrist saying hey why didn't you take your five grams of creatine you know it's like hey why aren't you sleeping for at least seven hours every night yeah (laughs) like focus on the big rocks And there definitely are some valid reasons as to why people can't like for people who have young children Mm -hmm. and who get waked up five or six times a night, like it's tough for them to get seven hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, All we're saying is if it's within your power to get seven hours and you're doing things like watching Netflix or playing video games for three or four hours every night, then it's probably wise to wise up. Yeah. And (sighs) I'm going to admit that I didn't actually get my sleep under control until about 
maybe two and a half years ago when we'd finally graduated uni. Like mm. I didn't treat it with as much of a priority because I, I was very aware of it, but I just would prioritize other things above it. So for example, I was quite money driven at that time. You know, I was supporting myself through uni, living out of a share house and I had a job working at UQ Sport with these just wild hours that like you'd have to start at 4.45 in the morning or like I would close the gym at 11.15 p.m. at night and I would just take up shifts, right? Because I was like, well, I live a 10 minute walk away from the uni. Yeah, I can do it, so why not? My sleep schedule was all over the place because I was always falling asleep and waking up at different times after having these humongous days of training and studying as well. and even at nighttime, right? Like I'm walking home and I'm walking past like, you know, a really loud bus station. And I might be like on my phone on Instagram at like 1130 at night, like really messed up. So (laughs) that's definitely coming from a place for me that like, I didn't have my sleep under control for a long time because I just prioritize other things. But then ever since then, now we've implemented all of these sleep hygiene protocols. Sleep's never been better. So let's touch on some of those things. What do we do? get good night's sleep Mm -hmm. well first of all i think it's important to actually have a plan in place and not just kind of wish that your sleep would be better Mm. and i guess this is hence why we're discussing sleep hygiene but first of all establish your sleep wake wake cycle what time do you need to go to bed what time do you need to wake up in order to get the amount of sleep you're hoping for Mm. and yeah that doesn't mean saying nine to five that would be eight hours Mm. but like be realistically, are you going to fall into bed and hit and hit the pillow and be asleep at nine? Probably not. Usually it takes on average about 15 to 20 minutes for people to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. So be wary of that. But a really consistent sleep-wake cycle is good because just like eating meals at a similar time, you establish that biological clock for sleep and wake. Yeah. And if you ch- chop and change that all the time, it's your, your body isn't going to get quite as used to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah bedtime and wake time and I really like how you made that point of think about the time before you physically fall asleep so if your bedtime was 9 p.m what are you doing from 8 p.m onwards Mm, totally and that brings us to on to another few different points which are mainly all about the period around two hours prior to bed Mm. so for example with your nutrition we've said this a lot and it, it does kind of surprise people but try not to eat within that two hour window prior to bed or even drink i reckon yeah purely because again it relates to that biological clock in terms of the hydration you don't want to overhydrate and then uh, overhydrate isn't the right word but you don't want to use the bathroom frequently at night Mm. Um, and that was the worst thing about comp prep is that you'd get up two or three times to to piss and it's like it's incredible right now where you you can sleep through the whole night without pissing. <laughs> but you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh God, my bladder. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, that's absolutely right. So yeah, try to avoid some food and fluid for at least the final two hours before you actually fall asleep. That's going to play a huge role in just your digestion, your comfort, and your quality of sleep, and just your blood glucose regulation while you sleep as well. That's really imperative because I think we've all been there again this is just life where maybe you go out for a really late dinner with your friends and then you drive home you're like oh god it's 10 30 p.m at night i've got to go to bed i've got to be up early in the morning and you try to go to bed like immediately after you've just had this big dinner and you haven't had any time to properly wind down a lot of us don't get the best night's sleep after a situation like that so set yourself up for success 
And then the next one would be your environment. Try to not have it too bright. Probably mm. the darker, the better. Yeah, so be wary of blue light. Most computers now have night mode. iPhones have night shift. You can wear blue light blocking glasses. Make sure that you have blackout blinds in your room. There's not excessive light. Try and sleep in a cool environment. Mm. Have some source of white noise. Use earplugs if you need to. Personally, we have a fan in our room. Mm. I also use earplugs. I have blue light blocking glasses. I have it all. We have blackout blinds as well. I used to sleep with an eye mask and yeah, the earbuds as well because mm. I lived right on a street where buses would go by and that's a game changer if you live in like especially like if you live in the city you know and these things are outside your control it's quite loud or if your housemates are having a party or something like that like put in some earbuds it's amazing so peaceful mm. yeah but definitely dim the lights as well don't have every light in your house on not just to save electricity but like so your body can start to be like okay cool like I'm about to start falling asleep. Like it's getting dark. Yeah, probably my recommendation that I think would help people the most would be avoid stimulating activities prior to bed. And a few things that people don't think of is even like studying. Mm. Trying to study and then fall asleep when your head's still full of that knowledge stuff. <laughs> or <laughs> You and I are so guilty of that. Mm. Revising our notes and then trying to hit the hay. Yeah, even playing like a video game, like a first-person shooter, which is a bit uh, like hectic and you're shooting people. Yeah. And even watching a scary movie, which mm -hmm. might heighten your cortisol and adrenaline. Yeah, or even like a super action-packed movie as well. Mm. And I guess that's getting into the, the knit and grip, but I guess what we try and do, we usually read or something mm. for about 15 to 20 minutes while we're in bed, which really helps, again, form a routine and promote relaxation prior to actually sleeping. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to not, yeah, play super stimulating video games at night, not watch like a movie that's super duper scary or something. Right now we kind of just watch Chicago Med. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very good TV show, but like we watch TV Oscar and we sure, don't yeah. we don't have like a blue light locker blocker on our TV, but I know a huge game changer for me was not being on my phone for around an hour and a half to two hours before I fall asleep too. Like I usually get off my phone around 7 p.m. And then you and I get into bed at 8.15 p.m. We read for a while and we fall asleep probably around 8.30, 8.45-ish. But just like getting off your phone, man, and clearing your head, that's been a huge game changer for me. Because I used to be that person who would like just be on Instagram, I'd shut Instagram and just put my phone right next to me and fall asleep. Or I'd be up at night playing Candy Crush. Really? <laughs> I literally, in high school, I used to play Candy Crush before I'd fall, before I'd fall asleep. Like that bright light right in my face. Mm. Yeah, so asleep with your phone outside your room, that's a huge game changer. Like, and you and I still have an alarm, but we keep the phone in the kitchen. So like, if the alarm goes off, it makes you get up out of bed. You cannot press snooze. You have to actually have to walk around the corner wherever your kitchen is or something, and you've actually gotta get your alarm. I understand if you live in a house with other people, of course, and you can't put your alarm in the kitchen to wake everyone else up, maybe just don't have it. Put it on the other side of your room. Yeah, so you have to literally get out of bed to turn it off but uh try to keep your phone i feel like as far away from you as you can while you sleep mm. and for the love of god have that thing on silent <laughs> but i guess those are a few of our tips to get a good night's sleep mm, for sure awesome all right well final question of the day jack something that you learned this week 
So I learned how to create an online store for our t-shirts. So it's been, we've actually added quite a few things to the website recently. We've updated our coaching with new photos and we've added a podcast page. We've added a blog page. Now we've added the online store for our apparel. So it's interesting because like, I think both of us, when we thought about that stuff, like we had no idea how to do it. We're not that technically gifted, but sometimes it's best way to learn is through doing yeah and and google as well google's always very helpful yeah that was really fun putting that all together Mm. and uh the great thing is is it's just so simple to just navigate it yep yeah so guys for sure go check out tbd apparel and go check out the tbd blog awesome so what did you learn i think that i already mentioned mine but what i pretty much learned this week is that if you want an easy way out of some gnarly bulgarian doms what you have to do is just pop two NSAIDs, <laughs> but at the same time would not recommend mm. and also have good proprioception for where you are stepping when you're trying to re-rack your dumbbells because man, benches, they can, uh, they can get you mm. they can really get your feet. So yeah, just beware of that. <laughs> I will. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, it's, it's risky out there. It's, it's, it's dangerous. Big. Lots of heavy metal things. It's a wild, wild west at uh, World's Gym Brisbane. Anyway, guys, thank you very much for tuning into this episode. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we will catch you next week.